Hi, my name is Ron Roberts, host of The Ron Show, which you are listening to either on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever it is that you come to listen to this show via podcast. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you that before I share today's episode with you, this is a replay of an interview that I did Saturday morning. And Saturday was one of those gray, chilly, rainy sort of days. It was not really good for anyone who may be dealing with seasonal affective disorder. And I don't self-diagnose. I don't know that that's something I'm dealing with. Although, I can't stand drab jury weather. It does affect my mood. I don't know if there are other things going on in my life that affected my mood that day after doing this interview. Or if the weather, everything going on in my life outside of this show and this interview affected my mood. But I can tell you this. After having this conversation, and through no fault of the person I had the conversation with, I was in a really low place mentally. And I just felt it fair to share that with you. So that you go into listening to this conversation with Representative Rua Roman and myself, Representative Roman being the one Palestinian-American representative we have in the Georgia General Assembly. Anyway, I thought I would let you know that while I found the conversation insightful and meaningful and necessary, that it also affected me, and it may affect you as well. So with that, let's get to it. Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome Welcome. to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Glad to have Representative Rural Roman join us today. And hi, how are you? I mean, I I asked that and I already know that there's so much going on in the world that I I feel like I just say that as if to just kind of give you a virtual hug. (laughs) Thank you. Um, you know, just uh, taking it day by day and doing the best that I can. So I've wanted to have you on for quite a while for the last few weeks. And understandably, obviously, you're in legislative session and there's pre-planning for legislative session. And uh, I, I know I've, at times I've even caught you in moments where you're like, I just don't have it to have a conversation. And I get that. I so get that. It's so validated. Uh, We were talking before we got on, uh, you know, winter weather, seasonal affective disorder, whatever you want to call it. And on top of all that, you are one of what, maybe two, three tops in the country, Palestinian American legislators. And it's, it has to be such a weight to carry. Yeah, there's actually, um, well, there were five of us. And then um, I believe it's Athena in Arizona or Arkansas. I can't remember. We're like all in a group chat together. Just got to be Arizona. Like, it cannot be Arkansas. Tell me Someday. it cannot be Arkansas. <laughs> well, well, she, it's great because she's, well, I mean, hey, nobody thought a Palestinian would get elected in Georgia. But um, <laughs> it's great because she is resigning to lead a repro organization, which is, very needed. But yeah, but the only other person in the entire Southeast is um, Sam Rasul up in Virginia, which I actually sometimes forget that, you know, the South goes that far North, but you know, we don't need to get into that. So. Yeah. All right. So, well, on that note, let's, uh, let's start with, uh, with uh, the the stuff closest to home right now. Um, HB 30 just passed uh, out of the Senate and uh, 
that is the, uh, the the bill that sort of codifies, labels, defines what anti-Semitism is in the eyes of the Georgia legislature, and uh, it, it would seem a slam dunk that Governor Kemp's going to sign that into law. Yeah, you you uh, released a statement where you uh, you know do what every sane, rational person does and abhor anti-Semitism, but you actually say that this this legislation doesn't solve the problem and actually included some harmful language that wasn't in there before. Can you can you tell me what that harmful language is? Can you point that out for us? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, I do want to preface this to explain a little bit my principles and ideology. So I believe that as Democrats, we have an incredibly wide and broad tent that is full of incredible diversity and actually represents what America and Georgia looks like. That is a firm belief that I hold. Mm -hmm. What, But what that also means is a basic, most basic bare minimum principle is that we do not pursue or support anything for one group at the expense of another. Mm -hmm. That sometimes makes legislating really hard, but it's not like legislating has been the most, you know, uh, smooth sailing type of operation. So that is my like very sincerely held belief. Um, and what HB 30 does is it does not actually address the flyers that we have seen. It does not address um, the Nazi language that was projected um, in Cobb County. It doesn't even address the people who are holding a Nazi flag in front of a synagogue. Mm. And I'm explicitly mentioning those incidents because they are literally so close to home and they are so clearly anti-Semitically, like anti-Semitic motivated um, attacks and, um, you know, patterns of behavior that explicitly target the Jewish community in a really nefarious way. The bill does not actually do anything about any of those things. Mm -hmm. And so sitting through this whole process, I mean, it's like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs because the gaslighting was so intense. Every time we would bring up the fact that one, specifically as it relates to the language, the definition itself is not in the bill. So if you go and you read the bill, mm. it'll say that, you know, you should reference the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, but right. it doesn't actually have it in the language. You right. have to go to a website to look up the definition, but then when you go to the website and look up the definition, what you'll see is you'll see 11 examples, you'll see like a definition examples. of anti-Semitism, yeah, right. and then you'll see 11 examples, seven of which pertain to the state of Israel. And I want to be clear, some of those examples are legitimate distinctions of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. For example, holding a single person responsible for the actions of another state, particularly a Jewish person as it relates to Israel, especially if that person is not somebody working for like a pro-Israel organization, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, it gets more complicated if, say, for example, they work on behalf of an organization, like if they are the head of APAC or whatever, like I don't think you should show up to people's houses, but, you know, that person takes on a role, just like I take on a role as a state legislator, that people will come to me and express their concerns to me about what it is and the legislative agenda that I'm pursuing. Mm-hmm. And so, it, like, there's so many layers to it, but my point is, Those examples are not in the bill. The definition is not in the bill, but it forces our state agencies and legal system to reference that definition when determining if something is anti-Semitism. So let's talk about an example. Say, for example, I am a professor at a public university here in Georgia. Let's just say I teach at UGA. And I'm teaching a class on the Middle East, and I talk about how Israel is an apartheid racist state. And I'm talking about how I went on a trip with my, you know, uh, an educational trip with my colleagues and those colleagues realized, you know, 
one of them couldn't get through a checkpoint because they were profiled as Arab and that was incredibly racist. And then you talk about the institutionalization of that and you come to the conclusion as a professor that, hey, unfortunately, this means that Israel is a racist apartheid endeavor. According to this definition, that is anti-Semitic. And for me personally, I do not believe that that is, one, something that the state should be engaged on, and two, it's bizarre to me that we're protecting another country in the speech that we allow our citizens to do. So this professor says that. Somebody goes and makes a complaint. Now a state agency is required to do something about it as it pertains to this. So like, when you hear proponents of this bill go, nobody's getting arrested for saying something bad about Israel, mm. well, that is technically true, there are other ramifications for students, professors, public employees from this definition itself. Don't forget, Georgia has an anti-BDS law on our books that says if you get a job with the state of Georgia that pays you more than $100,000 or a contract worth more than $100,000, you have to swear that you will never boycott the state of Israel in any way. And so, like... So, you know, that's where I'm personally coming from. And then during session, everybody was like, no, this is, you know, this is a lie. These are just like extremist groups saying this, this, none of this is true. Like you all are making it up. But then during testimony, they would talk about how we need to stand with Israel and this bill is necessary. And so it was, it was so crazy. And then criminally, if I am protesting on a sidewalk and, you know, I end up on the streets, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and I get arrested for trespassing, And if I was holding a sign that says, like, Israel's an apartheid state, Israel's a racist endeavor, then I would get tacked on a hate crime, like, additional Mm. charge as a result of this bill. Because as I was committing a crime, I was doing something anti-Semitic. The more explicit example of this is that if I am a landlord um, and I get a bunch of applications and I reject nine of them and one of them happens to be somebody who is Jewish and they go on my Facebook page and they see I have all of this, like, you know, commentary criticizing the state of Israel for its human rights abuses, they could potentially bring a discrimination charge against me. So it, it sounds to me as if there is some uh, anti-First Amendment uh, fingerprints here. Also, it, it seems as if there's a little bit of a poisoning of the intent of hate crime legislation from the past, uh, as, as if to, to sort of almost ruin that for absolutely uh, for, for valid reasons for, the, for, for marginalized communities. Um, you know, in and of itself. And you brought up an example of a professor, but didn't that actually sort of happen with an Emory professor here recently? Yeah, so um, I don't know the details of the every case that's happened in Georgia because we've had so many, you know, but I will say that at the end of the day, like, I do not believe, and this is sort of my frustration, right? Because obviously a lot of my colleagues, for the record, so many of my colleagues expressed concern about this bill. Mm -hmm. That's why you'll notice that this bill passed by such a low number of votes. Mm. Last year when it passed the House, even though it was a better bill and it was a compromise, it still only received 136 yes votes. Mm. This year, it only received 129. Um, We had more no votes last year and less no votes this year because people felt like they did not want to be labeled as anti-Semitic, that they were against protecting the Jewish community. And so, I mean, it was awful. Like nobody, with the exception of those that were using it for political gain, were happy about the results of this bill Mm -hmm. because we all knew what it meant. And I think to an extent, everybody understood what it meant, but people also didn't want their Jewish constituents to feel like they didn't care about them. And so it was just a really unfortunate um, way that this went down because you're right. 
what we did, and you know, I'm still doing a little bit more research on this, but I think we are the only state, maybe Iowa is the other one, that did not take out those examples from IRA. Mm-hmm. Right? They keep talking about how like 37 other states have adopted this in some way by resolution, by law, by blah, 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 blah. We are the only state to do this this way, potentially one of two. So when you get down to the details of it, and that's where everything gets messed, it's the details. What happened was we literally picked one constituency within our coalition at the expense of another, rather than insisting on better language in this bill. Let's reset the table here just a little bit. We are talking with Representative Rua Roman of the 97th House District. She is the first Muslim woman to be elected to the Georgia State House of Representatives, the only Palestinian American serving in the General Assembly in the state of Georgia, and one of only a handful of Palestinian Americans serving in elected office at the state or federal level anywhere in the United States. We will talk a little bit more about HB 30. We'll talk a lot more about the struggle in the Middle East, what it's like for the residents of Gaza right now when the Ron Show returns here in minutes on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Thank you for listening, and welcome back to the Ron Show. Today, my guest is... Representative Rua Roman, she represents House District 97, which kind of cuts a swath south of Johns Creek in Gwinnett County, a little bit of Suwannee and Duluth and Norcross, and we're talking with her about a range of issues, uh, notably House Bill 30, which is awaiting the governor's signature, the anti-Semitism bill that passed the House and the Senate last week. We'll also talk a little bit more about what's going on with the Palestinians in Gaza. Do do you feel as if, and you can be as honest as you want to be about this, do you feel as if a lot of the support for HB30 from particularly evangelical conservatives on the right felt a bit like virtue signaling? Oh, all of it. I mean, to be very clear, all of it. And even, and I want to, you know, to give my sort of um, more religiously motivated colleagues credit, they were also uncomfortable with the free speech implications. And they were actually surprised that I was so well-versed in that sort of element of things. Cause I think a lot of times they see me as like this young, like millennial, you know, lefty legislator who just, <laughs> but I, I actually, a principle that I have is I don't, I don't agree with leveraging the state to further criminalize things like speech, things like civic engagement, things yeah. like, you know, any of that, because I think it's a dangerous slippery slope. Like no matter who is in office, even if it's somebody that I support, I can never guarantee the next person who's going to be in office. Yes. And I always want to make sure that whatever laws that I support, I always remember, okay, who is going to be implementing that law and could they misuse it? And so, you know, if you go watch the Senate hearings from Monday, you will literally actually hear evangelical leaders virtue signaling about Israel during the committee hearing on this bill. It's not like I have to say, oh, yeah, it seems that way. It was explicitly stated during mm-hmm. the committee hearings. Mm-hmm. And, and on that note, yeah, uh, this this weaponizing of uh, even just the intent to threaten anyone who speaks ill of anything that Israel does is is a suppression of free speech. I mean, it, it's just pretty simple. It's, it's an A-B thing. It, it's easy to connect those dots. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and again, um, one thing I try to explain to people is you kind of have to be a Rosetta Stone between the people for this bill and the people against this bill, because they are kind of using two sets of terminologies that are very disparate. And so when somebody says, yeah, I'm not trying to criminalize criticism of the state of Israel, like 
that's legitimate. And then you ask them, okay, what is legitimate criticism of Israel? Like, can you, can you say it's, it's like Jim Crow in the South? Can you call it an apartheid endeavor? They'll say, that's not true. That doesn't exist in Israel. When you say like, Hey, the West bank is occupied. They'll tell you that's not true. It's not, it is like under the um, control of the Palestinians, which anybody who has ever spent like 10 minutes in the West bank will tell you that's not true. Um, And so like, It's important to understand that when they say, oh, no, we don't believe that, you have to ask, okay, can you define for me what this actually means to you? And when you provide specific examples, that's when you start to see that, no, it's the way that they define criticism is actually completely different than what you would normally um, think criticism, normal criticism would be. You also uh, hearkened uh, to uh, to a concept that you actually mentioned in uh, on a, on a tweet earlier this week when you talk about uh, passing laws uh, for for one politician in office to utilize that can then be weaponized by someone who replaces that politician when they're in office later, and, and that mm-hmm. that 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 was uh, you discussing some border policy, and and I know that yeah. there's there's a lot of conversation in Washington about. Uh, you know, uh, border legislation that now even President Joe Biden, I think he's sort of calling uh, Republicans bluff on this because I don't think they're going to pass it. But he's basically saying, I'm here to pass this this tough on, uh, you know, Southern immigration uh, asylum seeker legislation. And we're getting no clue from the Senate that they're going to pass that. But there does seem to be some valid concerns about giving Joe Biden levers that a President Donald Trump 2.0 could have as well. Correct. And I don't think a lot of people know this, but I have actually worked on a border related project professionally for my full time job in the past. So Mm -hmm. like, I don't, it's funny because again, I don't think a lot of my Republican colleagues would think, oh, this person understands the border. I actually understand explicitly the part as it relates to protecting kids from like human trafficking and making sure they're safe. You know, I was on a team that did that. Um, And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that the reality of the situation is in DC and you kind of see it in political spaces too. People love to do these like gotcha. They want a message on things. You kind of have to walk a fine line between strategy messaging and fighting for your constituents. Mm -hmm. But I think there are some things that are just simply too dangerous to mess around with. And this is one of them, right? After we've had four years of a president like Trump, we need to understand that the laws that we allow one person to use can be used so dangerously, excuse me, by another, you know, person in office. And, you know, forget Trump for a second and forget Biden for a second. What I tell people is, no matter what political party you come from, imagine that the president is from a different political party and they are going to do something you absolutely hate. So as an example, I tell people, imagine, you know, and this could happen, right? Imagine if we give the president the power to force businesses to close or, you know, kind of like with COVID and everybody's freaking out about COVID. Mm. I'm like, instead of a national emergency from a public health perspective, Imagine if he did that for, um, if, if he did a climate change emergency. And within those um, climate change emergency like orders, suddenly we're going to start shutting down the borders to trade mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. And I told him this because I say, look, if we're going to set these parameters, if we're going to allow a president to have this kind of unilateral control, Imagine somebody you hate about a principle that you care deeply about that ends up leveraging that power against that principle. Mm-hmm. And it could be whatever it may be. Like as somebody on the left, I'm imagining, as an example, somebody like Donald Trump leveraging that 
to shut down all the borders, shut down all immigration. And now, for example, my family members will never be able to visit me here. Mm. They don't want to stay here. They're not immigrating here. They're literally just visiting. They have perfectly full lives mm-hmm. where they're coming from, you know, whether it's Jordan or Canada um, or Australia. Mm-hmm. But I try to imagine a scenario where it's not Joe Biden. It's somebody who hates everybody that doesn't look like them and they decide they can't come and visit. And so it's just concerning to me. And I think a lot of times people just don't, again, think about who is implementing the law and imagining it being a different person. Well, and also I I believe that there's this lack of grasp of the the full scope of uh, a situation. And I've talked about this uh, the last couple of weeks on, on my show, how there actually is work being done by this administration to deal with root causation of migration from Central and South American countries. Since, since uh, February of 2021, that, that plan has been, been slowly rolled out and been implemented, and we're, we're seeing some of the seeds uh, that were planted starting to bear fruit. But you, you can't just build a wall or get tough uh, at the border and think that solves anything. It, it's like putting your thumb on a water hose or, or putting a crimp in a water hose that's that's dousing you, uh, knowing full well that eventually somebody's got to let go of it. You're going to get wet again. Uh, right. and, and instead, you know, finding out a way to turn the faucet off so that the water stays where it is, is, is the smarter play. All right, stand by. Going to take a break. Back with our only Palestinian-American representative in the state legislature, Representative Rua Roman, when the Ron Show returns. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. We're with Representative Rua Roman from Gwinnett County. I want to go to something that uh, I know is near and dear to your heart. And I know as a state legislator, there's not a whole lot you can do about this, but uh, you are a Palestinian-American and the crisis in Gaza, the Israeli war on Hamas has been front and center, something that has divided even liberals in an election cycle, no less. I just kind of wanted to let you discuss your frustration. Sure. Um, you know, my frustrations are multifold, right? And, um, you know, yesterday when you asked if I would chat with you yesterday, I just did not have it in me because <laughs> the International Criminal Court of Justice had just determined that yeah. there was enough concern that there should be an investigation of genocide. Mm. And as a Palestinian, you kind of get used to the gaslighting that's like sent your way. You know, you're told your people don't exist, even though you're standing right there. You're told that Palestinians are actually the aggressors and they have all this power that you know that we don't. And, you know, for months now, I have been watching people that I know or people that other people know be killed. Yeah. And we were we were told like, okay, the killing isn't actually that bad. Um, and then we were told that it was a necessity. And then we were told like, I mean, it just, it was just a constant shift of narrative, right? As you know, we are watching this unfold. And I tell people, I now know of just four, four, four Palestinians, right? Just four of them mm. that have lost like 700 relatives and friends between oh the four of them. God. And so when people say, oh, these are like Hamas numbers or this is all propaganda. And I'm just sitting here like, well, I know 700 of them in my tiny little bubble. Mm. And I actually think it's an undercount because, and, and again, you know, somebody made the comment, they're like, look, even if you decided that every man was a militant, it basically argues that, that the civilians were the target and the militants are collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And so this is a reality. It's a hard reality that the bare minimum that people should do is accept it. And so when that court case came down, it was just sort of a, whatever little hope a part of me held on to that maybe, maybe it wasn't as bad as we were seeing. Mm. It just evaporated. And the reality just, it had hit me in force, you know, late October, early November. And then I was just kind of like, 
maybe it's not that bad. You know, maybe we can do something about it. Okay, come end of November, surely we'll see something. You know, we saw that temporary ceasefire. And then I was like, surely by the end of December, we'll see something. Mm. And now here we are at the end of January with this court case. I just, I'll be honest with you, it broke me. This is not a part of the job that I expected. It was not part of the job that I signed up for. But Mm. the reality situation is, like you said, being the only Palestinian legislator means that I'm the only person people can turn to to say, hey, can you help me reach my senator? Can you please liaison with this member of Congress's office? They're just not listening to me. Can you please do something? Mm. And I'm a state rep. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm literally one of the youngest state reps, you know, the state has ever had. Mm. And I don't know what to do with that. Like, yeah. I really, sincerely, not to be like, woe is me, but every day I'm just trying to learn something that I could do for these people who are just so desperate. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we talk about those killed in airstrikes and we debate those numbers, but... No one's talking about the number of people dying of starvation or yes. preventable illness yes. or... And my fear is by the end of this, we will come to realize that at bare minimum, if there's ever an end to this, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of March, 10% of the Gazan population is dead. That's pretty sobering. And at the same time, it's it's not as if... And I'm sure you get this all the time. It's not as if anyone who is uh, sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians or mindful of the atrocities in Gaza can just turn around and say, okay, well, I'm going to reach out to Hamas and ask them to release their hostages. Obviously, that is a clarion call for everyone. Release the hostages. You know, this solves so much. Okay. But, but at the same time, we did have uh, a temporary ceasefire and hostages were being released. And that ceasefire stopped existing. Right. And here's, you know, what I explained to people is this. There is not a single elected official that opposes releasing the hostages. Right. So when people are like, why aren't you calling for the release of the hostages? My answer is why is there anybody who is in opposition of releasing the hostages? Like show me an example of a United States elected official that says, no, Hamas should get to keep the hostages. Right. I'm literally not seeing that anywhere. But what I am seeing is people from the president on down saying that a ceasefire is somehow anti-Semitic. Like, literally, I have heard this feedback given to me over and over again that the calls for a ceasefire are nothing more than, like, well-hidden calls to anti-Semitism. And, Mm. I mean, people have lost the plot so badly on this that I've had people who are like, oh, poor small president, he can't do anything about this. No, foreign affairs is one of the few places that the president is directly and personally responsible for the decisions that we make as a country. Mm -hmm. Personally responsible. Mm -hmm. And I have friends who work in the White House. I have friends who work in the State Department that have also said the exact same thing, which is that they cannot seem to get through to the president that we elected. I've tried to explain this to people. For those of us who are politically active and engaged and who supported Joe Biden, I've told them time and time again that I spent hours door knocking in Forsyth County, Georgia. And for those who don't know, Forsyth County, Georgia is still one of the most conservative counties. (laughs) You know, even back then, like I was knocking those doors during COVID for the president and flipped the state for him. And now I feel guilty because I feel like it is my fault those people are being murdered. And that's how so many of us feel. One of the people that I talk about a lot um, here in Georgia, actually, her name is Radha Najaf. She's like really um, active. She raised like, I think it's like a million or two million dollars for the president. Like she created Arab Americans for Joe Biden. You know, she had said something along the lines of like, no other candidate understands that Palestinians are humans like Joe Biden. She has lost 78 family members in Gaza. Oh, my God. And she's like, I feel personally responsible. And so when people are like, well, do you just want Trump? Like, you know, the other guy wants to ban you. And I'm like, no, 
Like the point is y'all need to start yelling at POTUS now to shift gears so that we might even have a minuscule of a chance of turning out these communities. Because the sad reality of the situation is, like I said at the very beginning, when you have a large coalition, it makes governing harder. Period. Mm. End of story. Yep. But the bare minimum is that we don't hurt them. The bare minimum is that you at least pretend you care, right? Like Mm. there was a statement the White House released on the 100th day of all of this where they were only talking about the hostages, didn't mention the number of Palestinians. That didn't even say the word Palestinian. Mm. That is a choice, right? And to turn around and then say, well, you know, these Arabs and their allies are just crybabies. They just want Donald Trump. Like they don't know what's at stake. They have no idea what they're talking about as if we're like these like ignorant, like led by emotion, yeah. have nothing like, yeah, sure. sure. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm grieving my dead family members yeah. and like think your electoral politics right now are like the last thing on my mind. It's quite dismissive. Similar, yeah, absolutely. It's awful. It's awful. And, you know, again, I remind people, it's like, okay, when you get down to the bare minimum, you're telling me that Trump will either ban me from this country or Biden is going to bomb my family overseas. <laughs> yeah. Like, is that really the choice that you want me as a Palestinian voter to go to the voting booth with? That's if I even make it to the voting booth, like right now, my biggest concern as an elected official and my focus for this year is turnout because I know that we are going to have the same turnout problems that we did in 2016, Mm -hmm. because rather than people being a little bit kind about it and being like, I hear you and I'm so sorry. They're like, you guys are all idiots. And these are just the choices that you have. Yeah. The whole get in line or we lose rhetoric just doesn't. It's never worked. It didn't work in 2016. It's not going to work now. And speaking of the frustration uh, with President Biden, again, it's visceral. I can feel it. The UNRWA funding over Mm -hmm. an allegation that there was some sort of ties to the hostage taking and uh, uh, October 7th. um, Can you speak to that? Because it it seems like it's it's, it's punishing with a wide wide swath. Yeah. um, You know, I always have to remind people that vilification of the UN and its institutions literally started because of this issue. Like, I'm not trying to be like, oh, we're really special as Palestinians and Israelis and whatever. But the reality of the situation is one of the few international organizations that ever took Palestinians seriously was and continues to be the UN. And as a result, it's been vilified as a terrorist supporting organization that, you know, all this other stuff. Now, here's some facts for the audience. When people talk about UNRWA, UNRWA, they're talking about an agency within the UN that is responsible for refugees and explicitly one of their biggest sort of populations that they help are Palestinian refugees. There's a lot of like legal complexity to what your identity is as a Palestinian. Like some people like me have a Jordanian and United States passports because we, we, you know, my family was exiled and so was able to start establishing those residencies. But there are stateless Palestinians. And so UNRWA has kind of become the like de facto go-to for a lot of them. And they operate in Gaza and the West Bank. They operate schools. They operate, I mean, they operate everything that, I mean, people don't realize there's not really a Palestinian government. Like there kind of is, but there kind of isn't. So they they employ over 13,000 people. A few months ago, Israel made the allegation that there were seven of those 13,000 employees that were involved in the attacks on October 7th. So I want to repeat, seven of the 13,000 employees. That's like saying that, you know, um, Apple had seven employees that were involved in criminal activity in like some state. Right? Well, like, I mean, we, we could also liken this to what happened on 9-11. We know that most of those who perpetrated the acts, uh, the horrible acts on 9-11 were, were Saudi Arabian, but we yeah. didn't punish Saudi Arabia with such a wide Correct. swath or at all, really. Right. And so it makes this like particularly a depraved decision to make, especially now, is one, these are based on allegations post-interrogations that involve torture. So we don't even know if they're true. There has been no third-party verification, right? This is just, Israel said this happened. 
We have not actually independently verified it. We sat on this for months, right? Like this is not like this came out yesterday and we made the decision the day after. We sat on this for months. And as soon as the ICJ ruling came out saying there could potentially be genocide. And one of the requirements is that aid enter Gaza. We decided as a country to lead an effort to defund UNRWA, the only organization that has had consistent people on the ground being able to deliver food aid, one of the last left. And so people want to tell me that like this isn't intentional or it's complicated or whatever. No, this is the way U.S. foreign policy has been since, you know, the 1930s, right? Like I, what I ask of people is like, you can think whatever you want to think. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Just don't insult my intelligence and don't insult the intelligence of my people. Because even though we're refugees, the thing that we care the most about is education. And you'll find people who are just normal, average, everyday Palestinians more well-versed in international, like, human rights-related issues Mm. than, Mm. you know, some, like, academics. And it's because it's the only thing we have left, right? Like, sure, there's armed resistance with organizations like Hamas, and but unfortunately, like, that has turned into terrorism against civilians, and, like, it's just become, like, such a, you know, violent um, movement and also one that hasn't been effective for its people, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I have to remind people that when we, when they're like, oh, why haven't the Palestinians gotten rid of Hamas or whatever? I'm like, one, I would love to have that conversation, but after the killing stops. And two, the main position that everyone has held for the longest time is that Palestinians deserve better representation than the, you know, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, Mm. right? Because neither of these, like, organizations have taken care of its population. But you can't have that kind of a conversation until you stop the, like, again, root causes, right? I'm somebody who's all about the root causes, whether it's about immigration on the border or crime in our streets or, you know, um, violence in the Middle East. Like, I always, always have to remind people, if you address the root causes, and I remind people this all the time, Hamas's popularity always drops during peacetime. Netanyahu and Hamas need each other, right? It was it was Netanyahu that facilitated cash transfers to Hamas. It wasn't Palestinians, right? Palestinians did not give Hamas millions of dollars. It was Netanyahu. And so, and, and this is like, I, w- I want to be very clear. This is sourced by multiple Israeli news organizations yeah. on the left, on the right, and in the center. That's right. Um, you know, we have American organizations that have finally picked up on this. Like, you know, this wasn't a meme I read on the internet. This mm-hmm. is This is a real policy it was like called like quiet for quiet. Um, I think NPR actually reported on it yesterday. So on the case of UNRWA, UNRWA has been the only consistent provider of services for the Palestinians, particularly the refugees. And to cut them off right now, as we expect mass starvation to start killing people in February, like mass, I'm not talking about like a few kids dying here or there, which is already happening. I'm talking about people will start dying in mass because there's no food or water left. And that is what we've done. The United States has decided that in response to this ruling, they are going to cut off aid to UNRWA, and they have now gotten, I think it's like Canada, Britain, and Australia to do the same. I, I almost feel as if that there's this one lesson that was learned, and it's one that uh, the U.S. adheres to in, in a lot of the Western countries as well. You know, the, the way the United States ended World War II with Japan was to drop two nuclear bombs on two of its major cities. And I feel as if that that is a lesson that somehow was learned that, listen, if you bomb or, or, or kill uh, a population or uh, of people in a strong enough way, they'll just be made to heal and become docile citizens for the rest of their lives. And that doesn't work. We, uh, we invade Iraq. I firmly believe that at some point in time, that's going to come back to bite us uh, in some way. We are going to have created terrorists 
uh, in a country where terrorism wasn't uh, as hostile to the United States. Uh, we, we did that with Iran when we toppled their, their uh, duly elected government in the 1950s, and that blew up on our faces in 1979. I firmly believe that this treatment of Palestinians uh, in Gaza and the West Bank obviously creates hostility. It doesn't create a docile nature or an environment where people go, you know what, I want peace with these people. Yeah. You know, people got mad at me because I think it was like on October 7th, I immediately called for a ceasefire. And what they didn't understand is that was under the assumption that Hamas was still in Israeli territory, Mm. right? Like I was, they don't realize that as Palestinians, you become incredibly immediately aware of the potential for escalating violence of things going bad very, very quickly as we're seeing now in Gaza. And, you know, I had people like, you know, somebody like sent me a very profane email, like, you know, you're, you know, I always knew you were just like a terrorism supporting, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, I kind of have to look at this and go, which one of us is supporting terrorism? Because I'm the one who's saying all hostilities and violence must cease. And you're telling me no, but you're calling me the terrorist sympathizer. Right. Because a ceasefire means that all sides stop. Yeah. Period. End of story. Right. The killing ceases immediately. That is what a ceasefire is. And I've had people try to like mansplain to me the difference between like a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause. And like, no, no. When I call for a ceasefire, I know what I'm talking about. Mm. Because what we're seeing in Gaza right now is time and time again, Israel has said, oh, we bombed this place because it's, um, you know, Hamas headquarters. We bombed this place because whatever. And then when they leave and people go, look, there's like nothing there. There's literally, you know, there's no evidence of weapons. There's no evidence of a command center. There's no evidence of whatever. And now every major hospital has been destroyed in Gaza Mm -hmm. and or like damaged in some way. And so like it's like tearing down the house because you've got a termite problem. It's awful. And you you know, so like, yeah. And so I'm like, I just it's an and, you know, it's an undisciplined military. Like it's an undisciplined military with incredibly racist undertones. It's like posting their international war crimes on TikTok. Yeah. And I'm not exaggerating. Like yeah. they are literally on TikTok. And you're like, why wouldn't you want to stop that? In what world? And especially like you said, the hostages were released during a ceasefire deal. We keep being told that Hamas isn't in the north anymore. And yet we got news, I think it was like last week, that more rockets have just been fired at Israel from the north of Gaza. Mm. How would they do that if they weren't existing in the north? Mm-hmm. So like again, I would really appreciate if people would just stop lying. And if they would just stop pretending that like this works and actually do something that does work. We are on with Representative Rua Roman from Georgia House District 97. She is the sole Palestinian American legislator or elected official at the state level of any level here in the state of Georgia. We have a few more minutes with her. We will get back to this conversation when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com or wherever you podcast. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Given the entire conversation today to Georgia State Representative Rua Roman joining us from House District 97. She is the only Palestinian American serving in the state legislature here in the state of Georgia. So there's a lot on not just her plate, but her shoulders. So a really heavy conversation. And again, this is one that I've, you know, sort of been wanting to have with you for quite a while. And I I hope if nothing else that you get a little bit of relief by just kind of letting some of this out wherever you get the opportunity to. But I have to ask you, where do you find joy right now? Because it's got to be hard to find it some days. Yeah, I, um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'll be 100% honest with you. I haven't. I think people think that because I have been like quote unquote restrained on social media that I'm fine. 
and I'm not like, I'm not going to pretend that I am. And I'm not going to like tell people like everything is dandy, but I also have a job to do. And I know that that job comes with responsibility. And so, you know, the best that I've been able to do is just take breaks, recover. Um, you know, I've, I've been trying to find like as much time for running as possible. Cause I find that to be very meditative for me, especially cause I'm a very slow runner. So mm-hmm. it's like really nice. Um, and, you know, I just have to remember that uh, I was reading like an article the other day about, you know, just how Martin Luther King was viewed and how people actually saw him when he was alive and how, you know, the majority of people actually did not support and mm-hmm. like Martin Luther King Jr. when mm-hmm. he died or when he was assassinated. Um, I think it was like 30 percent of people polled said that he brought it on himself. Right. So what I like to tell people is that I do take solace in the fact that more and more people are beginning to understand the reality on the ground in Gaza and the West Bank and for Palestinians in the area. I think they're beginning to understand that on this particular issue, we have to be extra careful about what we're being told and ask for definitions. And like I said, I've never seen this kind of support for Palestinians in my life. It's a multiracial, multi-faith coalition. And I want to be clear, these are not like token non-representative Jews and they are actually very proud Jews who have been incredibly like just steadfast allies in ways that still melt my heart and mm-hmm. so like I have to remember that the loudest people are not representative of what's happening day to day on the ground right now and I want to be clear like some of our Jewish allies like we don't agree on everything and we'll argue about certain things and they sometimes get upset when I say things like yeah race like you know Israel's kind of racist and you know what's happening in the West Bank is apartheid and we argue about that right and 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 these are not easy conversations but when it comes down to our human our, our humanity and our shared humanity that has been a principle that that has kept us so steadfast in our movement time and time and time again and so you know while people might try to erase them and while people might you know say they're not really Jews and they might call me a terrorist like Thankfully, that has because I've heard it all my life. It's like it's just noise now, and it doesn't actually bother me. And it, you know, seeing who stands with me is has been has actually really truly just been heartwarming. Well, I, I was going to ask you if if you noticed uh, or, or felt a sense of a growing uh, understanding from the perspective that you sit from, and, and I, I sort of sense that too. And you see it in the streets, uh, not just throughout the United States, but around the world. You see that in the streets as well. And that has to be heartening. But again, the reality is on the ground in Gaza and in the West Bank where we're, where we're seeing, you know, military casualties, you know, stack up uh, for the civilian population there as well. Mm-hmm. That's the grim reality. I mean, it's, it's nice, it's nice to see growing support, but the grim realities uh, in Gaza and the West Bank are what they are. You know, I'm one of the few people in my family, which is a very large family on both sides, that's been able to go back. One, um, I obviously was not allowed into Gaza, but, you know, the West Bank has been on the verge of boiling for a very long time. And this has been one of my my greatest frustrations is that when Palestinians do something bad, right, like especially like organizations like Hamas or something, we rightfully and understandably immediately as a country respond. But, you know, this settlement problem, when, when we talk about settlements, we're not talking about like cute little towns. We're talking about massive cities with infrastructure and roads and we're talking about an, a, an increasing extremist population that is now being armed by the state as a way of quote unquote self-defense. And they are, you know, summarily executing Palestinians in the street. And they actually recently killed an American citizen. Right. Um, And it's dangerous and it's scary. And, you know, again, this goes back to why we keep calling for a ceasefire because it's not just a ceasefire in Gaza. It's not just a ceasefire in the West Bank. It's, it's meant to lower the temperatures because again, in the West Bank, like that's not where Hamas operates, right? That's not where Hamas has headquarters. Exactly. 
you know, they're, Israel is bombing um, hospitals there and bombing refugee camps there. Like, it, it's just, you know, but, I, you know, I always, always have to remind people, it's like, the West Bank is full of people and they deserve to live with dignity and they deserve to be um, happy and live fulfilling lives. And Who had nothing to do with October 7th, you know? Nothing. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't. And I've, and by the way, I found like I've seen tweets of people trying to justify it by saying, oh, you know, surely some of the supporters were there. Like surely somebody from the West Bank was involved. And even if it is right in what world collective punishment has never been OK. It's never OK now. It will never be OK then. Right. I agree a thousand percent. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got some other things you got to take care of this morning. And uh, I just appreciate you giving me a little bit of time to to discuss these very complex issues, both at the uh, the micro, uh, the state, uh, and, of course, the national and international level. Representative Ruo Roman, thank you for coming on The Duran Show. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Again, that's a conversation she and I had Saturday morning that I decided I wanted to share with you today. And I'm not going to lie, this conversation really affected me. And maybe it was the weather, and maybe it's just other factors in my life that just had me in the dumps all weekend. But I've really had a tough emotional weekend. Hopefully it didn't affect you the same way, but you came away a lot more aware. Anyway, back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. And by the way, starting next Monday, The Ron Show will begin airing first 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, with the replay at 5 o'clock. Have a good one. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care.